0: Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. My guest today is Scott Newstock, author of How to Think Like Shakespeare Lessons from a Renaissance Education. Scott is a professor at Rhodes College, and his book has been described as a love letter to the craft of thinking. In our conversation, we address a very interesting question How is it that Shakespeare and his Renaissance contemporaries we able to produce such incredible works. What was their education like and what can we learn from studying it and applying it to our lives? We also discuss what we've lost in education today and how we might begin to recover it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Scott as much as I did. My friends, I bring you Scott Newstock. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real Time Podcast
1: Network, where we explore principles and habits that help you live a meaningful,
0: flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Scott Newstock, welcome to The Good Life. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Sean. Well, it's great to have you here, and I'm really excited about today's topic of discussion, which is your new book, How to Think Like Shakespeare, Lessons from a Renaissance Education. I absolutely love the book and your writing style, which is quite unique. You've got these short chapters, they're concise, insightful. You bring in all these quotes and observations from philosophers and writers and artists and thinkers, and some of them are contemporary, some of them are ancient. It's really a great kind of commonplace book sort of approach. And I'm also a huge fan of Shakespeare. I have two kids in high school, and I've been watching and observing their education and fretting and thinking about how to improve it. And so I'm probably a great demographic for the book. And I've been thinking a lot about education today, and I'm I'm not impressed. So I hope we can get into that. I thought I would start with with Shakespeare, because in the book, you compare and contrast what we know about Shakespeare's education to our modern approach to education. It reveals perhaps where we've gone wrong and how we might correct things. So let's start with this incredible literary figure, Shakespeare. Why should we look to Shakespeare as as an ideal? He wrote, I think, 400 years ago, if I have the math right. So what was his education like and why should we turn to Shakespeare?
1: Well, his education was in some ways, you know, very conventional. It, It entailed a lot of things that looked to us almost remedial on the level of imitating and copying other authors and working through a, a series of practices, which, again, I think might strike us now as being, I don't know, outdated or not worth the time. But I think if you if you just step back and you kind of reverse engineer and, and look at his career and the career of hundreds of other writers that were contemporary to him within a couple of centuries, it's worth pausing to think about what kind of an education helped those kinds of people write as well as they did. So he's the example of the book, but I really do try to draw from a number of his peers and a number of his predecessors and successors to say, what's the model here that helped enable a certain kind of facility with words and a a flexibility with thinking. So those basic practices like imitation, copying, translation from one language to another, back to another language, They turn out to have had really remarkable effects, that they actually were ways in which you took rigid looking practices and made them vehicles for incredibly nuanced thought and things that we still read today, 400 years later, as you were saying. I think, you know, one of the things that I was doing as I was thinking my way into the book was puzzling over exactly what you were saying, you know, what led to this kind of person? And at the same time, I was thinking like you, I'm a parent and I have my own children going through school and have had some great encounters with education and some frustrating encounters. And I was trying to kind of reverse engineer and think about, okay, what seems not to be working for them and what could be still enduring from these these earlier habits and these earlier practices?
0: Yeah, well, it's a fascinating approach. You can imagine walking into Shakespeare's little schoolhouse there in Stratford-upon-Avon and a modern observer might take a look at the practices and say, this just looks outdated. This we don't teach our kids like this at all because it was very disciplined. There was a lot of rote sort of practices, as you mentioned, translating from Latin into, I guess, into English and back into Latin. and That's right. Copying, going back and copying other writers, looking at imitation. A lot of these things that we are really have moved away from is what we would observe if we walked in there. Yet, here was this incredible writer, this incredible mind that was developed in that way. So I... I think it's worthy to look at that. You also make a really interesting point about the aim of education. And you ask rhetorically sort of what is the aim? And recently writers have said, or thinkers, educational philosophers have said things like the aim of education is more education, if I got that right. But you say that it's really to teach us how to think. And Shakespeare is really fascinating in that we get to see someone demonstrate how a human thinks. So maybe you could comment on that because I thought that was really interesting.
1: Sure. If you're willing to grant that our thought is structured by language and we express our thought through language, then I think it follows pretty clearly that becoming as adept and clear and flexible as you possibly can be in articulating yourself is a version of refining your thought. And you know that many of us know this, that we often don't know what we wanna say until we try to say it. And it's a kind of cliche about composition, even, that one of the ways you begin to clarify your thought is by forcing yourself to draft some words on paper and then they're external to you and then you can puzzle over them and you can revise them and someone else can look at it. So if you're willing to grant that big premise, which is that thought is not independent from language, it is deeply interwoven with it. It, It's almost two sides of the same coin. Then any educational system that helped you become more adept at language is a way to help you become more adept at thought. And there are all kinds of wonderful inadvertent consequences from that. So, you know, just to be upfront, Shakespeare was not trained to be a, a playwright. There was no such thing as creative writing until the 20th century. There wasn't even a public theater that was available for him when he was a child that that came about in his 20s. So it was not as if this kind of training was designed with the end in mind that we want to train a whole generation of playwrights. What they did want to train was a whole generation of people who could write well and who could think well, mostly to serve in the government or to serve in the church in some other capacity. But that had all kinds of wonderful downstream consequences that were unanticipated and in terrific ways. And I think I'd like to think we all have versions of that in our own education where something that looked kind of basic and not like it was designed for a career actually turned out to be one of the great things that make us who we are and make us active participants in the world. In general, I would say one thing I'm trying to do over and over in the book is to get us away from kind of false binaries of saying, you know, imitation is the opposite of creativity, but in fact, it's often through imitating others that we become more autonomously creative ourselves, or the translating from one language to another is just a kind of rudimentary thing. But in fact, that's how you become more fluent in your own language by struggling with a second or third or fourth language.
0: Yeah, you have this idea, or you put forth this idea or this concept that you know Shakespeare's education or, or a Renaissance education, had these harsh inflexible, disciplined elements to it. And to take one example, we could use this translating the Latin into English and back. And it's kind of important to go from one to the other language and then back again and see how your verbal agility and your language skills can handle that. And you've done some practices in the classroom. You talk about that, which is really fascinating. But we think of that as not really teaching people how to think. I mean, we think of that as just sort of, exercises and practices that we seem to be getting away from because we're more about testing and other things, yet that inflexible, disciplined approach really led to liberal, innovative, and novel thinking. That That's kind of the interesting piece there. And yeah, had this great quote from Alfred North Whitehead. There's so many great quotes in there, but I got to throw yeah. this one in because he says, education today is often rigid where it should be yielding and lax where it should be rigid. So we've almost got it exactly wrong there in our approach based on you know, possibly what Shakespeare was doing.
1: You know, the funny thing about the Whitehead quotation is, it's he's he's a mathematician and a philosopher, and that's from a hundred years ago. So you know, this is not a new complaint. This is part of the part of the art of education is is the complicated, ongoing, perennial dance between structure and flexibility, or you know, whatever whatever kind of framework you want to use. He he talks about rigidity and and laxity, but I think. I think every teacher and every educational system is always in the process of trying to balance enough infrastructure and enough autonomy within that infrastructure. And and we tend to swing too far to either pole, and then we overcorrect in the other direction. So this is not a new complaint, but I do feel like that little statement by Whitehead really does capture something fundamental because he's admitting that there is a good form of rigidity and there's a bad form of rigidity and there's a, there's a good form of laxity and there's a bad form of laxity. And, and that's not a simple thing to figure out. And to even to recall that he's a mathematician, I, I love that too. He's, he's a mathematician who has a great sense of the kind of art of thinking and the delicate balance that all thinkers in all disciplines are always undergoing and always both modeling within their own thinking and helping cultivate in their own students. So again, it's an old old complaint, or it's an old observation, and maybe what it reminds us of is that teaching is not a science, and thinking is not a science, but it's really more like an art or something like a craft that is an ongoing process that you develop throughout your life.
0: I love this idea of a craft, and you have a chapter devoted to craft. Comparing thinking to craft and this idea that in a craft we practice, we use our hands in some way, there's an activity. You usually are paired up with a master in some way, so there's sort of an apprenticeship, and perhaps that's a better model to teach our children how to think is to think of it as a craft and think of it as an apprenticeship, not a one size fits all, put them through the the Henry Ford manufacturing line, but really more of a renaissance sort of apprenticeship approach.
1: Yeah, I like that language of craft. I think it more accurately describes my experience of what has been great for me in my education as a student and the moments that I've really loved as a teacher as well as the moments that i've admired in my own children's education i know that craft it risks sounding very precious or antiquated in different ways but i was just trying to come up with a way to talk about the good things about education that were different than the language of assessment which i find to be rigid in the way that whitehead is criticizing rigidity and you mentioned apprenticeship that's a helpful aspect of what we think about when we think about craft it's multi-generational it involves an ongoing process of handing down a series of practices over time. You know, not unlike the way we say you practice law or you practice medicine. Those are things that change and evolve. They're not rigid, but they are real. And they and you can be better or worse at practicing law and practicing medicine. And I think you can be better or worse at practicing writing or practicing speaking or practicing all kinds of different human activities. And one great thing about craft is it both conveys the sense that this thing, this craft exists outside of you and me. So I think physical analogs are easy, easy to think about. So for example, the craft of woodworking, woodworking has been done across the globe for millennia, and it exists outside you and me. I might happen to know about a certain practice than you do. And maybe I learned that from someone else, or maybe the wood actually taught me how to do it because I was pushing against it and it pushed back against me, but we're both working on the wood. And even if you're a novice, you are bringing to bear your human capacities on that wood. And even if I'm an expert, I have more things to learn. So in a way the wood, you know, the, the object is external to us and, and that's what we're engaging with over time. And I'm not the first woodworker that's ever worked on wood and I'm not the last work woodworker who's ever worked on wood. And I would say the same thing for language and thinking, you know, you are, you're not the first person to write a sentence and you're not the last person. And there are all kinds of different ways to do it, writing that sentence. And some are appropriate for some occasions and those occasions change over time. And the same sentence is not appropriate for a different occasion. So I just feel like that to me feels more accurate. And I'd like to think more joyful and more rich than, the language of assessment, which really I find deadening in many unfortunate ways. You no,
0: know, another aspect of that craftsmanship and apprenticeship is that idea of location, which I think is another chapter in your book, which is the apprentice is usually next to the master in some way. You don't apprentice in the, certainly in the Renaissance days, you didn't apprentice with someone three or four towns away. It was someone in your village who taught you to be a blacksmith, taught you to work with leather, taught you to well, in Shakespeare's family, they were glove makers, right? Mm-hmm. And that idea that you're next to the person, that it's another human that's watching, observing, listening, laughing, experiencing life together in some way. And right now we have this massive experiment going on with our kids where they are learning remotely. And we know there's some advantages to that in a pandemic to be able to mm-hmm. continue ed- education. But we also know we're losing something there, some some of that proximity that brings a spark of life to learning.
1: Yeah, I have a friend who teaches in Hong Kong, and his analogy for what we're doing with remote learning he, he says it's kind of like the crummy spare tire that you pull out of the car. And, you know, it works better than no tire when you have a flat tire, but it's not something that you want to drive on. All the time, it's not optimal. I don't think you would choose to drive on that donut for all kinds of reasons—safety issues, mileage issues, and so on. So that's—I think—that's a helpful analog, and that—that that is not in any way to malign or critique the millions of teachers globally who have spent countless hours doing their utter best in incredibly trying circumstances. Um, I hope—I hope that's clear. I'm. I recognize these are emergency measures that we've all been forced to do in this emergency scenario for the last year now. That having been said, it's better than nothing. I don't think it's better than the in-person dynamic that I cherish for the reasons that you were you were indicating. I like to call it close learning, what we do in the classroom rather than distance learning or remote learning. And I, I think that applies across many different disciplines. Obviously, it applies in the a craft studio. It applies when a music teacher is near the student and can adjust their posture. It applies in the laboratory when a laboratory instructor is recognizes that a student is having some difficulty with the experiment that they're working on and can walk over and help them adjust what they're doing. It, it applies in sports. When a, a coach is looking at the gate of a student and or athlete and making suggestions about adjusting their posture or how they're running, so I again I keep coming back to these physical analogs because I think they're a little bit more apprehensible for us, and we're we're really willing to grant that. Oh yeah, you know, distance coaching is not the same thing as being in the same space with a physical sports coach. You know, and that having been said, you and I are in a mediated distant relationship right now that would be extremely cost prohibitive for us to try to be in the same place. So. This is better than us not having any connection at all. But we are also adults who are skilled in having these kinds of conversations and have been doing it for decades. I think that this medium of connecting on a screen via microphone is something that adults who are practiced in having conversations can navigate and use to its fullest capacity. And I don't deny that. You know, I'm on a number of nonprofit boards and we've functioned fairly well during the pandemic, it's not optimal, but we're doing okay. But I think the younger you go in age, the more difficult this medium is because you've not had practice in having conversations in a room together. So in some ways, you don't even know what the physical analog is. And your attention span is is different. And you're not fully engaged with all of your senses in the way that you are when you are co present with another human being. So you know, I can just speak but personally, from my own experience as a teacher this past year, I miss so many things about the classroom. Some of them are, are entirely nonverbal. I think students underestimate how much effort teachers devote to reading nonverbal signals and knowing that this student is about to say something and but needs to be nudged to say that or recognizing that this student is upset and acknowledging that and allowing that concern to be expressed. It's almost impossible for me to read that. On a screen in the same way, and you know there are many other things that you can do in that medium. I've I've been bringing in distant, remote guest lecturers, which has been great. But I really miss sitting around a table together, and i th- I think we I think we've underestimated how valuable that space is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And i what I took away from your chapters on the importance of location and proximity and the warnings of technology being a complete substitute, that there's a certain push in the educational movement around technology substituting the the closeness of the teacher. And I think where I'm in agreement with you is that we can't completely abandon this relationship that's worked for thousands of years. Going back to Plato and Aristotle, walking with your teacher And listening and being there, reading the nonverbals, and let's make sure we don't lose that. And in each of our our own individual journeys of learning, how do we continue to cultivate that? Um, I want to turn to another aspect that you mentioned earlier, which was a part of Shakespeare's education, which we've sort of moved away from, which is this idea of imitation, And we want our students and we want ourselves personally, we want to be innovative, we want to be novel, we want to come up with new things. And there's a huge push against copying anything from the past. And yet, if we look at Shakespeare and we look at his plays, they were lifted from all of these previous uh, resources and plots. He wasn't completely novel in one respect around the plots, but he was completely novel in other respects. So can you talk about that idea of imitation and maybe how we might better approach imitation than we do today to produce innovative novel thinking?
1: Sure. I think a word that helps me clarify this, that's a synonym to what we talk about when we talk about innovation is invention. And there's a cool way in which the root word for invention, the Latin root word for invention, gives us two different words. So the Latin root word is inventio. And that gives us both the word invention and it also gives us the word inventory and in his educational world in the rhetorical pedagogical tradition that was developed and inherited from roman and and greek rhetoricians inventio was the first thing that you did in in the five-stage process of making a speech inventio was the first thing that you did that meant making an inventory of the stuff that you already know so that way you can select from that stuff and arrange it then for what is most appropriate for this particular occasion so in a way that word is perfect because you are being inventive you are coming up with a new arrangement of inventory of knowledge that you know but you do have an inventory of knowledge it's not the idea that you make an invention from nothing You are not starting from scratch. That's kind of a 19th century fantasy that we have about how invention works. But if you actually talk to any scientist, they're always quick to acknowledge that the invention was them combining other things that other people had done in a new way. I mean, that's the novelty is is the recombining or the the rearranging or the the new application. So I think if you have a naive ideal that the inventiveness comes from thinking up something from scratch... I think that's just not accurate to to human creativity across millennia. I think the creativity comes from engaging, again, with the kind of craft-like tradition of previous makers in your discipline or your world or your field, whatever that might be. And then your contribution is the kind of synthesis or the almost alchemical blending of that stuff to make you, you. So again, I think that we have great examples in the physical realm where we're very willing to say, A child who is imitating their favorite athlete and emulating the moves that that athlete makes and then emulating the moves that another athlete makes and then imitating a different kind of move for this different purpose in that sport eventually the child ends up synthesizing all of those moves into their moves like that's their repertory of of how you play that sport and that's not to say that it's derivative but it it doesn't come from nothing they're not just saying i'm going to start throwing this ball they partly learned how to do it by watching others do it who are really good at it and who have been able to kind of transmit wonderful insights about how to flourish within that realm so we have many many examples of of human creators who were ingenious because they were engaging with their predecessors and their and their peers
0: and what might we do for our children or our education process to perhaps encourage this kind of innovation and maybe move away from this idea that imitation is always to be avoided because we don't want outright plagiarism but we mm-hmm, want mm-hmm. we want the connection of ideas we want to bring in you know take something from biology and apply it to the novel you're writing or fr- mm-hmm. take some idea from Quantum physics and put that into how you think about the market in in business or something like that. So we're bringing in cross functional ideas. Mm-hmm.
1: I guess one thing that's been helpful for me is I always try to present anything that I'm teaching as as a human who is making something and and responding to a particular challenge. So I'd like to think that that model of presenting every writer with whom we engage as a maker makes them feel like they are not distant from us. They are human like us and they were struggling with the particular challenge and they had a set of resources that they deployed to address that challenge. So that to me makes whatever we're doing feel less distant or feel less like a kind of, I don't know, cold monument or something that is utterly alien from me. But rather like the more I can see Shakespeare or Emily Dickinson or James Baldwin as a maker. And the more I can think of myself as a maker, I think the more I appreciate what they're doing. And I think the more autonomous I feel about, hey, I'm their equal. I'm making stuff too. So, you know, just as a trivial example, I teach a history of literature in English course, and my students imitate the forms that we are reading. That seems pretty old fashioned, but I think the consequence is they feel like I know what it is to write a sonnet because I have written one. And now I can actually recognize one that I like and one that I don't think is as well written as another. And they're not the best sonnets that have ever been written, but they're also not the worst. And they're kind of thinking about the machinery of the language from the inside. I mean, this is, again, part of the craft conceit, which is, you are, you know, you're tinkering with the engine, right? Like you're kind of lifting up the hood and going like, how is this, how does this work? How does this function? And, oh, if I, if I adjust this thing, it works a little better. If I adjust this thing, it, it doesn't, doesn't function quite as well. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways to stage that. I think, I think if you can say, you know, what was this scientist trying to do when she was trying to solve this problem? It makes it a human activity and not like some random arbitrary thing I have to know from a textbook but it's actually part of an ongoing process of, of human uh, human flourishing and human, human making in the world.
0: I love this idea of thinking of ourselves as makers and working with other makers. I think one of the challenges I've seen for myself, and I see it in my kids too, in children, maybe even more so in children, is the self-consciousness. You said, maybe it's not the best sonnet that's ever written, but you wrote it. And I think what I have struggled with in helping my children adopt this spirit of being a maker is they tend to discount what they wrote, what they (laughs) created, because they're just beginning. If you go back to that apprenticeship idea, when you first teach the journeyman, they're not going to be a master yet. And it seems more acceptable in the physical world than maybe in the thinking world. But I think we really need to encourage people to accept that they put something down the page. It came from their own thinking. They created it. They're a maker. It's just a first draft. It's just the beginning. But that's the beginnings of thinking. And I think there's a huge opportunity there to spend more focus and time on that sort of activity, building them up, getting them to do more of that so they can work that muscle.
1: I think that's right. I think one of the things that you can do is, frankly, be modest about where you're starting and not feel like you have to write a novel from scratch, but something more like, Let's work on one good sentence, and and you can write a good sentence at a, at a very young age. And you can, and one of the ways you write a good sentence is by writing the same sentence and then going through variations on that same sentence. And one of the ten or twenty that you do will be better than the others and more appropriate to the occasion that you're writing for. So I mean that's that's an old trick. That's a five hundred year old trick that Erasmus comes up with, and it's it's in this great book that's called the copia that's another latin word that gives us two english words just like inventio gives us inventory and invention copia gives us copy like a you know a photocopy but copia also gives us copiousness like profusion like cornucopia and erasmus he's talking about copia in both words and ideas what he ends up modeling and what most people fixate on is his example of copiousness of words but he's also talking about copiousness of ideas. First, you have to figure out those words. And his stunt example that he uses is a great instance where he says, Let's take the sentence, Your letter has pleased me greatly. Modern day equivalent was would be something like, Thanks for the email. I got your I received your email. And then he goes on and says, Let's think about all the different ways we can rephrase that. How greatly did your letter please me? It gave me such joy to have received your epistle. Upon receiving your letter, I was overcome with gladness. And he just goes on and on and on. And you know he's joking on one level, but he's also serious. And he's serious in the sense that if you can work that well on thinking your way into articulating that sentence, that's a great building block for then a better paragraph, a better story, a better novel, a better argument, a better annual report, whatever the eventual goal might be you know, one of the things I love about Erasmus among the many things is that he does have that sense of playfulness that even in this kind of arbitrary rigid exercise, there's a, there's a kind of wit that's, that's emerging. And, you know, one of my former students actually who went on to work in an advertising firm said, actually, we do this in our advertising firm. You know, we work on a line of copy and then we come up with a hundred variations trying to find the one that works best. So that's real. It, it works, that's effective. And I think that's a way for even a a, a small child to to work on something modest and feel like wow i here's here's three different ways of writing the same thing and one of them actually works better for these reasons and then you need the teacher to say this
0: is why this one works better and is that the sort of activity or exercise that shakespeare would have done
1: we think so i mean that you know in the early 1500s erasmus was he, he wrote a number of treatises about education because he cared about it deeply and he cared about language and he cared about translating and editing the Bible and and translating classical works accurately. And those treatises had an enormous influence across Europe. And he was in conversation with some of the first major founders of schools in London, who then eventually influenced the schools across England in the middle of the 16th century. So we have examples like that of those kinds of practices. You know, there's it's easy to react against that. There are, Francis Bacon complains about copiousness of words, overwhelming copiousness of ideas. And there's an example of someone wanting to swing the other direction on the spectrum and saying, that's enough of, you know, too many words. What we really need is ideas and and wanting to overcorrect in that in that direction. But even that gesture, even the gesture of saying we should have a plain style, is it's still a rhetorical gesture. You know, there's there's no such thing as the absence of style. That's still a, a choice about how you how you articulate things.
0: So one of the th- common themes that keeps coming up is Latin, just the Latin language. And I couldn't help think about Montaigne when I was reading your book. Montaigne, his book, The Essays, each chapter starts with of something. And he's got a very famous chapter of education where he talks about his own education. And he, when he was old enough to start to learn language, he only learned Latin for, I want to say, seven or eight years. I can't remember exactly, but his father brought in a Latin teacher. His father didn't even speak Latin, yet he taught his son to speak Latin from a native language. And Montaigne went on, he says in his essay on education, was a very important foundation to his education. And then we hear Shakespeare, you know, translating from English into Latin and back, Erasmus writing in Latin and thinking in Latin. We don't teach our kids Latin anymore. And are we really missing something there? My daughter goes to a public school here in Seattle I was excited because I had a Latin program there. They just dropped it the year before she got there. They just couldn't hold on to it. And I went to Catholic education growing up, but in my Catholic high school, they didn't teach Latin, but yet my parents who also went to Catholic education a generation before me learned Latin. So we've sort of, just in the last couple generations, we've just let go of Latin. What Talk about that, I mean, Scott, because are we, should we go back to Latin?
1: <laughs> well, you know, it's funny the. It's great that you bring up Montaigne. he He is the other kind of unspoken hero of the book, in addition to Erasmus. Oh he you know, he takes Erasmus in a different he takes some of the same premises in a different direction. So, as you described, he had the the most extreme version of a humanist education you could get because of his his father and his father's experiment of of hiring this German tutor who knew no French and wouldn't let anyone in the household speak any French to him. though he also, in the, in the essay that comes right before the education essay, you know, he's, he's very careful about juxtaposing the essays. So you you read them and, and they have a kind of dialogue with each other. So the essay on education is brilliant and it's wonderfully autobiographical and searching in the ways that we always love about Montaigne. The previous essay is on pedantry, about being a pedant and being like an, an insufferable school teacher who fixates on only quoting other people and not having your own thoughts. So, I love Montaigne because in some ways he's the epitome of that educational system and he's also reacting against it. But in some ways, the way he was able to react against it was by going through that system. Um, was the way that he became so wonderfully fluent in his thoughts in French was by not speaking French. So, you know, the, the decline of, of Latin is a fascinating and kind of enormous historical topic. I guess the, the main point I would make is it doesn't have to be Latin. It can be any other language that helps you realize that your own language is not as much of a given as you think it is. And kind of like the cliche about fish, not recognizing that the water that they're swimming in, if you are monolingual, you just take it for granted that this is the way things are expressed. If you struggle to express yourself in a second or third language, that conversely helps you realize, wait a minute there are many different ways I could express this in my home language or my, my first language. So, you know, I love, I love Latin personally and having access to it gives you access to a whole series of, of writers and an enormous intellectual history, but there's nothing magical about that one language over any other language. You could, you could pick any language that you worked, that you devoted yourself to over a long period of time and that you forced yourself to become fluent in as a way to actually help you become more fluent in your native language. So do, does that, those two distinctions make make sense?
0: Yeah, and it gives me hope because we are teaching our kids at least Spanish, it seems like, in America, a very popular second language and to maybe a, another degree French. So that's good. And I think it's another reason we should all encourage ourselves to continue to to push for a second language so that we can get out of the confines of thinking within English, because it limits us to just that one perspective.
1: You know, it's again, it's funny that you you raised Montaigne. I was just looking at that essay on pedantry, and I was forcing myself to try to translate the first paragraph. And I have barely any French, but I love the effort that it put me through. Look, you know, I looked at a number of different translations simultaneously. I was able to kind of think my way back into the French, even though I have little to no training in it and you know eventually i kind of hammered something out that i liked and and i feel like i'm closer to montaigne as a result of that because i've kind of thought my way into his words in a way that just reading a translation is not the same not the same thing
0: you know the other thing about montaigne when i was reading your book is that you're talking about shakespeare but it seems like you're using montaigne's format of bringing <laughs> things together it wasn't a play it wasn't a sonnet it was Sort of a Montaigne-like series of essays. Certainly, a lot shorter, which I appreciated. But uh, <laughs> um, and they apparently cross-pollinated a little bit. We we understand, right? Those two. We do. So
1: Montaigne is translated right in the middle of Shakespeare's career, sixteen o three. He's translated by the great John Florio, and we have, you know, for example, in the Tempest, there is a passage that is in some phrasing, verbatim, lifted from Florio's version of Montaigne's essay on the cannibals. Though even that's a complicated nod that Shakespeare's making because that speech is by Gonzalo and he's kind of one of those older characters that likes to blather on and it makes you wonder exactly what's going on by letting him articulate those words at that moment in that play. It's not the same thing as quoting Montaigne directly, but you're kind of ironically embedding it within a particular speaker. So, I mean, that's an, that's another great example of the, the ways in which you can absorb the voices of others. But yeah, I, I love Montaigne. I'm working on his ed- essays on education right now. I think that that more people should read those. I think it would be wonderful to have those essays gathered in, in one volume. And it, it, he certainly was an inspiration for the book in the sense of, he is a commonplacer as well. He is someone that loves, loves lifting passages from others and then weaving them into his own words and allowing his thoughts to meander because this person said this, but this person said this, and that makes me think of that. And he's wonderfully self-contradictory. And you feel like you see a mind at work when you're reading Montaigne. And that's a, I think that's a deep, deep pleasure.
0: So my formal education is sort of baked. I mean, that, that ship has sort of sailed. I don't think I'm going to be back in a college classroom again, taking a class. I mean, it's not impossible, but many of us are in the same situation. We're professionals. We are trying to improve in our uh, professional endeavors. We're trying to flourish in our, in our lives in some way. And part of that is thinking. Part of that is engaging with some of the great works of the past. And you know, one of the really sort of inspiring ideas in your book is that we can improve how we think and people like Shakespeare and Montaigne can help us. So I, my question is about how do we better engage with those kinds of ideas? Maybe we could take Shakespeare for a moment because I have not read all of Shakespeare's plays. I've read a few, I've enjoyed a few immensely. But I also find it a bit of a challenge because the, I had the complete works of Shakespeare next to my bed for a while, but the font was so small and <laughs> it was just you know they it abbreviated the names and you'd forget who it was and and so that didn't work. And then I tried it on my Kindle, which had some challenges. And even there's a great app that you can get for your phone. I can't remember mm-hmm. the name. You probably have seen it, which I've read on airplanes. What do you suggest for that? Is there a certain like is it the R Dan version? Is there a certain because I think engaging with the commentary is important too, and maybe seeing some plays. So, do you have any advice for people like me who want to engage more with Shakespeare? I want to learn more about how how to think from observing this these great works, but I I, I find it challenging.
1: Sure, I mean, in some ways, one of the benefits of the pandemic has been that there's been an enormous amount of conversation about Shakespeare, in particular, online, and a lot of theaters have released archived recordings of performances or designed performances that are online specific while, you know, of course, again, recognizing that that's not the same thing as being in a space co-present to other human beings and and all the wonderful things that emerge from that. But that having been said, there are more resources now for studying and watching Shakespeare online than there ever have been. And there are well-edited free versions of the plays online at you know, for example, the Folger Shakespeare Library has a, a, a wonderful set of resources for reading and thinking about Shakespeare. Shakespeare's Globe Theatre in London does as well. The Royal Shakespeare Company does. Many local theatre companies have done wonderful work in, in making their archives accessible. There are inexpensive paperbacks for individual volumes that have good accessible notes, again produced by the Folger, produced by Cambridge, produced by Norton. I, I do recommend single volume Version, so you get away from those heavy, intimidating volumes when you're when you want to read a single play. But I guess one one suggestion I make in general, and this is not unique to Shakespeare, I think it I think it's a, a decent piece of advice for any kind of reading or thinking is taking something that you know and you feel comfortable with, and then kind of radiating outward from that area of comfort or knowledge or expertise. So maybe you have a favorite novelist or a favorite poet or a favorite artist or a favorite musician you know, who influenced them? Who was that musician listening to? Or, or you know, what was John Coltrane reading about Indian melodic practices? And and who was he riffing off of? Or what was George Eliot into when she was writing Middlemarch? Or, so using, you know, a kind of nodal point of something that you already feel comfortable with, and you're like, I, I kind of got that one, or I, I, I love that novel so much. And I wonder what, Nathaniel Hawthorne was reading as he was crafting this, or I wonder what Melville was thinking in the midst of the composition of Moby Dick. And that way you kind of, you have a a good starting point to kind of a handle or a um, a point of departure. As the great critic Eric Auerbach described it, a point of departure that you, it's too hard to kind of throw yourself into the ocean and figure out how to swim. But if you kind of can push off from a familiar uh, familiar point, I think that helps. So almost like reading your way into their reading list, then that, again, helps kind of stage them as a maker for you. Like, oh, wow, that's interesting. So Shakespeare's not the first writer to have someone transform into a donkey. Hmm. God, I wonder, I wonder what's going on when this... He obviously read this Latin story about someone being transformed into a donkey and all the weird things that happen in that person slash donkey's experience hmm, it's he's not the first person to have pyramus and thisbe as these star-crossed lovers and he's making fun I'm, I'm teaching midsummer night's dream right now so this is obviously on my on my mind but i think the more you see the parts that were assembled to make a thing the more the more rich it becomes and the more you feel like again you you're recognizing someone else's making so if you start from something you know and then kind of radiate out from that into what you don't know that's connected to that thing that you know, I think that that starts to make it feel less alien and less distant and more like you're you're getting a handle on a wider set of concentric circles of of knowledge.
0: Yeah, I really like that idea and it gives you something to sort of hold on to as you as you expand out into maybe into the unknown a little bit. And I also like the idea of a single volume that's well-documented, but not, not too well-documented. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like to have a few end notes here and there to explain some words that aren't commonly used in the modern English, but I don't want to get bogged down. Mm-hmm. Um, as we're reading the Shakespeare play, do you have any suggestions for sort of how we work with it? Or you had a really interesting comment in the book where I think it was a leadership or management consultant who pulled out you know one thing on one page and said, look, this is what Shakespeare believes. And you kind of Cautioned about that, you know. It's like don't necessarily just pull out this one quote from this one character and think, "Oh, that's the secret that that's Shakespeare's secret to life." So, I don't know. Any advice in that area?
1: I think just thinking about him as a working dramatist, and he's he's really trying to figure out what will work for an audience, and he's he is not writing a treatise. I mean, it, he is not writing a Montaigne like essay. He's not writing a a political speech he's he's staging a series of voices in tension with one another I mean obviously the the best way to immediately make that palpable is to go see a play and to and to kind of throw yourself into that that dynamic um, but I think the more you can even when you're reading a play think about it as a series of kind of positions that are being articulated and kind Of staged intention with each other and less like this is what he thinks, this is his autobiographical statement, the, the more accurate that is. I mean, if it, you know, there's nothing stopping him from writing those kinds of direct autobiographical statements, but he didn't. And so, you know, maybe that says something about his personality. I don't know. But I think it's not helpful to go into the plays looking for kind of Shakespeare's personal philosophy. It's tempting, and you know, books that are snippets of what shakespeare says about law or leadership or love are they're available if you want them i don't i don't think that that's actually getting at what's fascinating about the plays in part because oftentimes those excerpted passages are themselves excerpted from other things that he was reading so you know a classic example is if you're looking at like let's say hamlet and you're trying to abstract what hamlet's philosophy is you know a lot of it's really just kind of warmed over other Philosophy that would have been stewing around in the sixteenth century, there's nothing terribly idiosyncratic about it. it. It sounds like a rehash of an undergraduate you know sophomore in a way, which maybe is maybe as accurate to what he was trying to convey but but it's a mistake to try to look at that and say, this is what Shakespeare thinks, or this is Shakespeare's philosophy rather he's someone that's interested in in staging different positions in tension with each other. do you
0: have any advice for passing on? an appreciation for Shakespeare to a younger generation who it seems the language is getting more challenging each year. Maybe that's not true. I don't know, but you know, think closer it is true. To, is it? Yeah. So, so each generation is having a little bit harder time and I've struggled with that with my children. Any advice there?
1: Well, I mean, one small piece of encouragement is already in the 1300s writers like Chaucer were, anxious about language changing and wondering whether they would be read in the future. And likewise, in the late 1500s, writers were looking back at Chaucer and kind of perplexed and needing glossaries and needing exactly the kinds of footnotes that you were describing. So language does change over time. Distant writers are more challenging to read because the language has evolved and they were writing at a different moment than our language. I find that encouraging that when you see Someone like Chaucer, or someone like Spencer, or someone like Dryden, expressing anxiety about whether they will be read in the future. That's a kind of just philosophical gambit of of acknowledging that. You know, separately, it it is regrettable that Shakespeare has such an anomalous position in many curricula, as often being not only the only non-contemporary writer that's read, but also the only verse writer that's read, and that places him in a, in a really, I think, regrettable position on multiple levels. Like, no one figure should occupy that position. It, ideally, we would be reading contemporary work and work from many prior centuries, and Shakespeare would be part of a continuum of many different kinds of writers in English across the globe, rather than, again, a kind of solitary outlier or a monument or almost a moted figure from the distant past. So even just on the level of verse that in itself is a kind of impediment that is always hard to overcome if you're not familiar with other verse and Shakespeare, again, Shakespeare has a weirdly, again, I think unhelpfully outsized status in the American curriculum in particular, as often the only figure that occupies that space, or even if you think about the common core state standards, the, the literature state standards don't name any writer except for Shakespeare. And I think that's a disservice to Shakespeare and to hundreds of other writers.
0: Yeah. It'd be sort of like 50 or a hundred years from now, if people want to learn jazz, you could only, only listen to Miles Davis or something. Right. I mean, right. Just only, one. Yeah, right. And, but yeah, there's this, all of this incredible improvisation and other artists that were coming at this art form from different perspectives and you'd be missing the richness of that. Maybe just as a kind of a final thought or question, you know in today's world we're so busy we're looking at our phones we are you know dealing with all the challenges of technology we have access to netflix at night to watch the latest series why should we put all that down and try to get into a shakespearean play which at times can feel bogged down it's hard you've got to work at it but when i get through i recently read macbeth and when i got through macbeth I felt this profound sense that I understood something about human nature that I didn't before. And there's probably a lot of things you could take away from Macbeth, but I, I felt like I really got something. You know, I wasn't eating junk food, I ate a piece of meat. <laughs> but, but so talk about that. Like, why, why should we do that? I, mean, I need a little bit more motivation sometimes to go try another one because it's like it was so hard to get through that one. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you know, you were earlier.
1: Describing that sense of kind of stretching yourself beyond your comfort zone, and again, we're we're very willing to grant that in the physical realm. Like this is, you need to lift heavier weights, or you need to run a, a more distant distance. And I, I think that that's true with you know, if even if you're not a painter, it's good for you to try painting. And even if you're not fluent in French, it's it's worth your while to struggle through French. And even if you're if it's not comfortable for you to read something from 400 years ago the effort pays off in all kinds of ways that are hard to anticipate at the beginning. And I guess the, the effort has a kind of virtuous compounding process where I suspect by the end of reading the play, you were not having to spend as much time looking at the footnotes as you were at the beginning of reading the play. I mean, I feel like that even when I go to a performance, it's often I'm and I, you know, I, I have read all the plays and I have seen a lot of them in performance. And often in the first act I'm sitting there and, and I'm a little perplexed by what's going on, but then there's a kind of transition that happens around act three or four. And it's in the same way that, you know, working in a second language can have that transition where you're really struggling to concentrate. And then you have that breakthrough and you feel fluent. Maybe it's, it's fleeting, it's, it's temporary, but, but you, you have a kind of moment of clarity. So I don't know if that was your experience with the, with the reading or not, but I, I, that, that's certainly been my experience with attending performances and and feeling like I have done something challenging and worthwhile by the by the end of it. Just in terms of Macbeth, there is a major Hollywood production that's coming out this summer starring co-starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand, directed by one of the Cohen brothers. So that's something to look forward to. And that may maybe will be a way to cycle back to to the play as well.
0: Is that going to be Verse for verse, Shakespeare.
1: I don't from- know. They've been, you know, they've been kind of quiet about it, and the pandemic has delayed the announcement of the release date. So I, mm-hmm. I am not certain. I'm unfamiliar with what's been done with the script. You know, that having been said, there are. I, I, I love productions that follow the verse. I also love, you know, I love Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, which is a is a brilliant transposition of Macbeth into a medieval feudal Japan with so far as I see, very little direct raising, but it feels like one of the best Macbeth films that I've ever seen. And there are there are you know, countless languages that Shakespeare's been translated into to, the, to this day. And there are wonderful archives available online. MIT has a, a terrific archive of global Shakespeare productions too.
0: I certainly did feel towards the end of Macbeth that the verse was coming a little easier. I was understanding more words. You get into the rhythm, you start to pick up you know, phrases here or there and the other thing about going to the play is the actors carry the plot you I may not understand what just <clears throat> transpired between two actors an actor and an actress and whatnot but you get the facial expressions and you sort of know from the direction that what just happened and I re, when I was in eighth grade I grew up in Oregon and we went down to the Ashland Shakespeare Festival which is a famous Shakespeare Festival and our, the culmination was we read a play and then we went down there. We read Romeo and Juliet and then we went and watched Romeo and Juliet. And I, I think that helped engender a love of Shakespeare where perhaps my children are the next generation. We need more of that it, because it is hard from their starting point to pick up a play and start to read. They're not just where I was at the beginning of Macbeth. They're another couple hundred you know, yards back on the football field. So that's a challenge. And that's challenge.
1: another... That's another example of the of the virtues of co-presence in a, in a place. You know, the the Shakespearean outdoor theater would not have had lighting other than natural lighting and so the audience could see the actors and the actors could see the audience and it's certain that there was there were fascinating ways in which the actors would play off of that complicated mutual knowledge that you know I'm playing but I also can see your eyes and I know you're you're smirking and I'm I'm kind of winking at you and I'm I'm nudging you in all kinds of ways, or I'm making you complicit. You know, we have wonderful examples of a villain that basically says somewhat something like Iago saying, you know, who, who's going to stop me? And then pausing and looking around and you, if, if no one speaks up in a weird way, you, you are kind of complicit in endorsing passively what, what follows from that moment. And that's, that's not the same as, as watching something on screen for, again, there are, there are many virtues of, of watching Shakespeare on screen, but it, the, the lack of the co-presence is something something different um there's a, a great horrific example of this from shakespeare's globe a few years ago produced the early uh, violent bloody tragedy titus andronicus and th- it's not ruining ruining the plot to say that there is a character who comes out violated and horrifically mutilated and that's the kind of thing that you would never uh, you, it would never make you pass out to see that on screen we're in, we're near in to screen violence in a way. But people passed out in the physical audience, even though you know it's just an actress who has pretend bloody stumps on her hands. But but there's something about that co-presence which is is incredibly powerful and, and I don't think fully replaceable on a screen.
0: Well, I absolutely agree with that. And I hope with the pandemic to an end soon, or at least getting to a place where we can go see some Shakespeare again will give us an opportunity to... do that and you know keep Shakespeare alive. I really appreciate this book you've written. I think it's a huge accomplishment. I think it's gonna get people to talk more about education, about you know what the goal is of education, how to bring some of these practices back, how to incorporate in our modern world the best education for our kids and also to our own continuous education. So I really appreciate it. And Scott, thank you for coming on The Good Life.
1: Thank you. It was a real pleasure Sean.
0: Thanks for listening to the Good Life podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.